0: There is a scripture to which President Howard W. Hunter referred during the training of General Authorities at the October Conference 1992. I have written that statement in my scriptures in the margin. This is the scripture from Jeremiah chapter 31. Behold, the day has come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts, and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. It is my conviction that most of you will live to see that day. How can the great Jehovah put the law in our inward parts and write it in our hearts? Why will there be no longer be a need to teach our neighbors? Why will He forgive our iniquity? A year ago this coming April President Packer, who along with the Twelve Apostles is responsible for the training of all the General and Area Authorities, gave us counsel and direction which will lead to the fulfillment of that quote. The training was the deepest and most meaningful of any I have experienced in my 29 years as a General Authority. It changed my life, and I would assume the lives of all the brethren. President Packer is a divine seer. He took the necessary preparation time and made the total effort required by the Lord to receive the direction necessary from the Lord. He read Farr's books on Christ, possibly the most accurate biblical scholar outside of the Church. It is he and his writings Elder James E. Tomage quotes in Jesus the Christ. Elder Bruce R. McConkie referred to his works often. President Packer read Fox's new book of Christians Martyrs, which I also picked up and read. The humiliation, the suffering, the horror, cruelty of the early Christians and the protesters is beyond our ability to comprehend. Most of those who were burned at the stake had their flesh torn from them, buried alive, put in dens with half-starved lions or tigers, suffered the deepest penetrating pain possible, and almost to their dying breath called out to Jesus. It was as though they could already see Him. As I read stories of hundreds who suffered those horrific Experiences. I wondered and hoped that if I were ever to be put in a similar circumstance that I would suffer in the wonderful, dignified way they did. I hope I would be strong enough to do that. President Packer read Jesus the Christ again. He read every scripture about the Holy Ghost and the Spirit of God in the standard works. He pondered and prayed, and the revelation came. I am convinced it was not just to be lodged in the hearts of the brethren. But as a revelation for the whole Church, I believe as General Authorities we are under sacred and holy obligation to take the message to the Church. I believe you will hear more on this inspired subject in the days, months, and years ahead, which will help and bless the Church more than anything else. President Packer's message was that we must live worthy to have the Holy Ghost with us 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for the rest of our lives. This was not a message for us only. It is a message for every member of the Church. Can you imagine what would happen if every man, woman, youth, and child would live in such a way as to qualify? We could startle the world. Imagine 11 million members of the Church now, then 20, 50, 80, 100 in the future, having that constant companionship of the Holy Ghost. It is my belief that President Howard W. Hunter, quoting that wonderful scripture in Jeremiah, knew that in a future day, not many years off, President Packer would help us prepare for the fulfillment of this wonderful blessing we have in store as we qualify. The second revelation of absolute and profound importance came to us as he and the Twelve encouraged us to testify of the living Christ. You've read the Declaration of the Living Christ by President Hinckley as counselors in the Quorum of the Twelve. How often do we testify of the things we hold most precious and dear in this life For some it may be occasionally, once a year or once in a while when we are called upon to speak or in a testimony meeting. We are true disciples of Christ. We ought to testify every day in every Latter-day Saint home to our wives and husbands, to our siblings, children. These are the people we should love most on this earth. These are those we want to know the truth of this mighty work. Opportunities will come in school, in our work, in the community, to testify uh, to each other and to build a greater faith to our friends and neighbors—not on our fa- of our faith—in a humble and sweet way. For example, a son may say to us, I sure think President Hinckley is a good man, and we could say, Indeed, he is wonderful. What if instead we would say, Son, I know he is a prophet of God, a seer, and a revelator. He may be one of the great prophets that ever lived. Can you see the difference? Can you feel the difference? A daughter might say, We have a nice bishop. and We could respond, Yes, sweetheart, he is. What if we would take this opportunity to say, Sweetheart, he was called by God, by revelation. He has the mantle upon him, and he is guided by inspiration in his calling. Children need to hear their parents testify, siblings can be strengthened and strengthen each other, and friends will be lifted spiritually. Can you think of anything in this generation that would affect members of the Church more than living to be worthy of the Holy Ghost constantly and testifying as guided and directed by the Holy Ghost of the truth of this great and majestic divine work, and more especially of Him whose work this is? This is how we will put His law in our inward parts and it will be written in our hearts. It is how our iniquity will be forgiven. Of course, when we live worthy of the Holy Ghost, it will have required repentance, submission, and meekness. Then we will have qualified, and then the Holy Ghost will inspire us to testify. And, of course, forgiveness comes. The 93rd section of the Doctrine and Covenants teaches us the reality, the possibility, of every worthy member of this Church. Verily, thus saith the Lord, it shall come to pass that every soul who forsaketh his sins and cometh unto me and calleth on my name and obeyeth my voice and keepeth my commandments shall see my face and know that I am. The Savior said every soul, not just the brethren or especially privileged souls, but every soul. Again, can you comprehend the power that would surge through the Church if every soul sought to seek the face of Christ and know that He is? Remember, the Lord's promises are sure. In the first section of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord counsels in this powerful declaration, What I, the Lord, I have spoken, I have spoken. And I excuse not myself, and though the heavens and the earth pass away, my word shall not pass away, but shall all be fulfilled, <clears throat> whether by mine own voice or by the voice of my servants. It is the same. In the eighteenth section, the Lord teaches, Wherefore you can testify that you have heard my voice. If ever I have heard the Lord's voice, it is in the declaration from the first section. There is a witness that penetrates my heart and soul, that what the Lord states is truth. Like Jeremiah, I thrill that His word is in mine heart, as a burning fire shut up in mine bones. This is the time to make a sacred resolution, to follow the apostles and the prophets, to seek the Holy Ghost, testify and qualify to see the Master's face. It has been my experience that fasting, prayer, study, and pondering are essential. Equally important is service. We must follow the pattern he modeled for us. King Benjamin also said, And behold, I tell you these things, that ye may learn wisdom, that ye may learn that when ye are in the service of your fellow beings, ye are only in the service of your God. And Francois René de Chateaubriand said, In the days of service, all things are founded. In the days of special privilege, they deteriorate. And in the days of vanity, they're destroyed. Henry Drummond, in an inverse way, helps us to understand the attitude of many, both in and out of the Church. He said, I live for myself, I thought for myself, for myself and none beside, just as if Jesus had never lived, as if Jesus had never died. No one can ignore Jesus, the Christ, His name may be profaned, he may be treated lightly as of no consequence, but he cannot be ignored. Napoleon Bonaparte, in speaking of the Savior, said, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I myself have founded great empires. But upon what did these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. Jesus alone founded his empire upon love, and to this very day millions would die for him. I think I understand something of human nature, and I tell you all these were men, and I am a man. No other is like him. I'm continue, continuing the quote. "Jesus Christ is more than a man. I have inspired multitudes with, with such an enthusiastic devotion that they would die have died for me. But to do that, it was necessary that I should be visibly present with the electric influence of my looks, of my words, of my voice. Christ alone has succeeded in so raising the mind of man toward the unseen that it becomes insensible to the barrier of time and space. Across a chasm of eighteen hundred years he makes a demand which is beyond all others difficult to satisfy. He asks for the human heart. He will have it entirely to himself. He demands it unconditionally, and forthwith his demand is granted. Wonderful. In defiance of time and space, the soul of man with all its powers and faculties becomes an annexation to the empire of Christ. All who sincerely believe in Him experience that remarkable supernatural love toward Him. This phenomenon is unaccountable. It is altogether beyond the scope of man's creative powers. Time the great destroyer is powerless to extinguish this sacred flame. Time can neither exhaust its strength nor put a limit to its range. This is what strikes me most. I have often thought of it. This it is which proves to me, quite convincingly, the divinity of Jesus Christ. Napoleon could not ignore him, nor can all the modern world leaders. By and by all shall know him, and the time will come when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Christ. Elder Maxwell witnessed he is not a one-planet God. If we would be like him, if we are going to be able to testify in his name and of him, we must have the Holy Ghost. Even those who have left the kingdom or turned aside from it, those who may have put him low on their list of priorities, are not lost. Job witnesses, For there is hope of a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that the tender branch thereof will not cease. Though the root thereof wax old in the earth, and the stalk thereof die in the ground, yet through the scent of water it will bud and bring forth boughs like a plant. I believe that through the scent of our testimonies they will return and bud again, testifying may be more important to many who have lost their way than we would ever dare to suppose. Your generation will live to see the fulfillment of all these things. Listen to the words of truth in this verse. The God of the great endeavor gave me a torch to bear, and I lifted it high above me in the cold and murky air. Straightway with glad hosannas the people acclaimed its light, and they followed me as I carried the torch through the dark and starless night, till, mad with the praises of people and drunken with vanity, I forgot it was the torch that drew them, and fancied they followed me. And my arm grew sore and weary upholding the shining load, and my tired feet went stumbling over the hilly road. I fell with the torch beneath me, and in a moment the flame was out. But lo, from, <clears throat> from the throng, the stripling youth sprang forth with a mighty shout, caught up the smoldering torch and lifted it high again, till fanned by the winds of heaven, it fired the souls of men. As I lay alone in the darkness, <coughs> excuse me, The feet of the trampling crowd passed over and far beyond me, their voices proclaiming aloud, and I learned in the deepening shadow this glorious verity—'Tis the torch the people follow, whoe'er the bearer may be. Whenever I speak to those your age and younger, I always wonder, are there those who are listening to me today who will be mothers of apostles and prophets, wives of these great leaders, mothers and wives of seventies, temple presidents, mission presidents? stake, presidents, and bishops? Are future apostles and prophets, 70s, these great leaders who will direct the affairs of the kingdom here today? Are those men who will preside over the Church, temples, missions, stakes, and wards here? Yes, I always know you're here. I always know you're out there. I want to warn you as a watchman, be careful, and be wise, and be clean and pure. You don't know who you are, but I think we do, and so does Lucifer. It will demand discipline, control, and purity if you will be called where you were foreordained. An unknown author makes this preliminary statement about holding our line. Expect to have your body cravings almost overwhelm you when you are alone. The narrowed perspective will be ever-present to persuade you, your physical self, to gratify itself in spite of great things out there. Emotion is the king. Right, emotional relationships is the thing. Knowing this helps at times, but it doesn't bring a cure-all. You have to have a strategy for handling this temptation. Perhaps the most subtle of temptations come to us when we don't recognize them as bodily appetites, pushing for overemphasis. However, in the very clash of ideas, if we hold up our side in the battle, the truth arises. Opposition in all things needs to be strengthened from the righteous side. We need to oppose evil with good in order for the truth to emerge. We might look at temptation and say as C.S. Lewis did with this unusual insight. Quote from C.S. Lewis, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the opposing army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of wind by trying to walk against it, not lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means, the only complete realist. End of quote. Now, how does all of this apply to you? I promise you that once you commit your heart and soul to this wonderful work, you'll have what Lord Lloyd Douglas describes as a magnificent obsession. I love this wonderful church, not only for what it is, but also for what it makes of us and those around us. Uh, we had a Filipino woman in, in, uh, in the Philippines, in Manila. I was standing in my office, and I looked down, and she was walking on two little very heavily calloused knees, dragging two little crippled legs behind her, going to the temple. As I watched and then watched her go in, inside of the temple, I uh, called downstairs to Bishop Santos, and I said, Bishop Santos, how long would it take you to get a new wheelchair and get it over to the temple? And he said, a little over an hour. And I said, would you go out and buy a new wheelchair and take it to the temple, and then you'll see a woman coming out walking on her knees. I'd like you to present it to her. He was gone and came back, got the with the wheelchair, and put it behind the pillar of the temple at at the gates there. And as she came out of the temple, he said to her, do you have a wheelchair? And she began to weep and she said, no, I used to, but it fell apart, it wore out, and I'll never be able to afford one again as long as I live. He said, how would you like a wheelchair? And this wonderful woman then cried very hard, and he went behind the pillar and pulled out the wheelchair and they lifted her up into it. I watched as they wheeled her across the street to the patron housing. And then about a week later, <clears throat> about a week later Bishop Santos came to my office and he said uh, President Featherstone we have a re- request for 200,000 pesos from a, a branch present down on a distant island he said a little boy a four-year-old boy has brain, a brain tumor and uh, they don't know what to do they went to the charity hospital and they put him on a one-year waiting list And he said uh, they went to the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church said they couldn't help them. And then they remembered that two years before, they had been baptized into the Mormon Church. They only attended church once. The Sunday they were baptized, and they have never been back. But they're desperate, and they need some help. The Branch President knows that we can't grant the request, but he said, I need an answer for them. What do you think? I said, let me look at the request. And I read it, and then I said, Bishop, if this was your son, we would do it. And if it was my son, we would do it. We're going to help this little boy." and I signed that request. Bishop Santos stood there, and the tears came to his cheek, this wonderful Filipino, and then the tears flowed down his cheeks, and he said, President Featherstone, we belong to a wonderful and a magnificent Church. I said, Yes, Bishop, we do. We belong to a wonderful and a magnificent Church. I was down in Richfield met a good friend of mine I met in San Antonio on the mission. His name is John, and John's eyesight is failing. He's almost blind, and they kind of needed a car for the family, and so he bought an old van, I believe, for $200 thought he could make it work. It didn't run, and he bought the parts as much as he could afford. And then he finally, about three months later, this car still wasn't running, and he really needed the money back out of the car. So he let it be known that he was selling this car, one of the good men. Down there went to him and said, John, I understand you're selling your van or the station wagon, whichever it was. And John said, uh, yes, I am. And he said, well, how much do you want for it? John said, I, I really like to get what I have into it. I've got $200 into it. I'd really like to get that much out of it. And the man said, $200, huh? He said, would you take $300 for it? And then tears started glistening in John's eyes. And he said, oh, that would be wonderful. Well, then how about 400 and then the tears came a little faster. And, okay, this is my final offer. I'll give you 500 for it. God bless those kind of people. I'm so grateful for that kind of faith in the Church. A Relief Society president was at dinner, and all of a sudden she jumped up, and she said, I've got to go. And her husband said, Where are you going? And she said, I can't tell you. I'll be back later. And she was gone for about an hour. And when she came back, her husband said, What was that all about? And she said, I had the strongest impression. I had to go to the bishops. I went over and knocked on the door, and the bishop's wife came to the door, and I said, Larray, I'm here. How can I help? And the tears flowed down her cheeks, and she put her head down on my shoulder and wept and wept. She said, You know, everybody loves my husband. He's the bishop, and they bear testimony about him on Fast and Sunday, and they talk about what a great man he is. I'm not sure anybody in the ward even knows I'm here knows I exist or even cares. I wondered even if God cared or knew I was here. and So I knelt down and prayed, Heavenly Father, if, if you know I'm even here, if you even care, please let me know. And There was a knock on the door, and the Relief Society President said, I'm here. How can I help? I, I was down in uh, uh, Stockton, California, and a high counselor came to me many, many years ago and he said, President Featherstone or Elder Featherstone, I've been impressed by what you've said about the family. He said, I have a son that's, <clears throat> that's uh, 17 years old and I haven't hugged him or told him I loved him in half of his life, not since he was 8 years old. I'm going home today and I'm going to hug him and tell him I love him for the first time in half of his life. And I stood there and I thought, surely when he was 7 or 8 or 10 or even 11 or 15 or 17, you always loved them and you always hugged them, I was afraid he might chicken out. So I said, w- would you mind just writing me a letter and tell me how things went? He wrote me a letter, and then it came about three days later, and essentially he said this. He said, I went home after church. My son was watching a football game and he was slouched in the Big Easy chair and his leg was up over the arm. And he said, I walked up to him and I grabbed him by the arm and pulled him out of the chair. And I hugged him and kissed him on the cheek and told him I loved him for the first time in half of his life. I read the letter and sat in my office and the tears ran down and splashed on the letter. Of course we love each other. Love is is critical. And then years way back when I was just about 11 or 12, I remember my uh, father had received his paycheck on Wednesday and finally came home Friday night and nothing was left and there wasn't any food in the house or at least very little. And I had, had saved 67 cents for tithing. And he took me by the hand and pulled me into his bedroom and he said, Vaughn, I understand you have 67 cents saved for tithing. And I said, yes, I do. He said, Vaughn, the church doesn't need your money. And of course, that was true. In those days, you could buy a loaf of bread for 14 cents, small loaf for a nickel, and you could buy a quart of milk for 14 cents. So it would have gone somewhere, at least. He said, the church doesn't need your money. They have millions of dollars. That may have been true. and. Then he said, And we do. Your brothers and sisters are hungry, and we de- need that money for food. He said, I want you to go get your money and give it to me. I remember I stood there. I couldn't move. The tears came in my eyes. He was my father. I couldn't say no, but I couldn't move. I just stood there, and I thought, No, I'm not going to get it. Then a second time, a little heavier, he said, I'm telling you, go get your tithing money. And it was like my shoes were nailed to the floor. Uh, and the tears came faster, and, and I didn't move again, and he was a big man. And then a third time, threateningly, he said, I'm telling you, Vaughn, you go get the tithing money. I remember standing there, and I thought, I, doesn't care. I don't care if he beats me. I'm not going to give it to him. It's not my money. It's the Lord's money, and I'm not going to give it to him. My mother must have heard part of the conversation because she came in and grabbed me by the hand and pulled me out of the bedroom and said, you let the boy alone, if he wants to pay his tithing, he's going to pay his tithing. I don't think I've missed paying a tithing in all those years since that, that particular sa- Saturday and Sunday. René Descartes said, Someday, after we have mastered the winds, the waves, the tides, and gravity, we will harness for God the energies of love. And then for the second time in the history of the world, man will have discovered fire. That's what this gospel is all about. You have some wonderful things to do in preparation. Enjoy the process of preparing for celestial marriage. Be excited, energetic, and be careful. One man who once stood in a high place in the Church is no longer a member. He has lost everything that is precious and dear. His brother wrote to him, trying to persuade him back. In so doing, he shared with him this quote from The Rape of Lucretia by Shakespeare. It is a warning to all of us. What win I, if I gain the thing I seek—a dream, a breath, a, a, a froth of fleeting joy? Who buys a minute's mirth to wail a week or sells eternity to get a toy? For one sweet grape, who will the vine destroy? Or what fond beggar but to touch the crown would with the scepter straight be strucken down? Thy secret pleasure turns to open shame, Thy private feasting to a public fast, Thy smoothing titles to a ragged name. You couldn't describe him any more accurately than I have just described this fallen priesthood leader. You will want beauty in your life, not sorrow and heartache. One woman shared her frustration about dating in these lines. At sweet sweet sixteen I first began to ask the good Lord for a man. At seventeen I recall I wanted someone strong and tall. The Christmas I reached eighteen I fancied someone blonde and lean. And then at nineteen I was sure I'd fall for someone more mature. At 20, I thought I'd find romance with someone with a mind. I retrogressed at 21 and found college boys more fun. My viewpoint changed at 22 when one man only was my cue. He broke my heart at 23, so I begged for someone kind to me, then begged when I was 24 for anyone who wouldn't bore. Now Lord that I'm 25, just send me someone who's alive. (laughs) Don't ever feel that desperate. Hope sees things as they are just around the corner. Someone else said whether you end up with a goose egg or a nest egg depends upon the chick you marry. (laughs) I recently read of a, a man who asked his girl to wed. Go to my father, she said. Now she knew that I knew that her father was dead, and she knew that I knew the life he had led. And she knew that I knew what she meant when she said, go to my father. It'll take a minute. (laughs) The years before, you are glorious and marvelous. Life will be hard, but wonderful. You'll be tested, but you'll win. You'll have sorrow, but find peace. Enjoy the beauties of life. And in a lot of years, you'll look back and realize you've had a wonderful ride. Ella Wheeler Wilcox gives profound insight in this beautiful poem. In golden youth, when seems the earth a summer land of singing mirth, When souls are glad and hearts are light, and not a shadow lurks in sight, We do not know it, but there lies somewhere veiled under evening skies, A garden which we all must see, the garden of Gethsemane. In joyous steps we make our ways, Love lends a halo to our days, Light sorrows sail like clouds afar, We laugh and say how strong we are, We hurry on and hurry and go close to the borderlands of woe that waits for you and waits for me. Forever waits Gethsemane, down shadowy paths across strange streams, bridged over by our broken dreams. Behind behind the misty caps of years, beyond the great salt found of tears, the garden lies. Try as you may, you cannot miss it in your way. All paths that have been or shall be pass somewhere through Gethsemane. All those who journey soon or late must pass within the garden's gate, must kneel alone in darkness there, and battle with some fierce despair. God pity those who cannot pray, not mine but Thine, who only say, Let this cup pass, and cannot see, the purpose in Gethsemane." Yes, we will all have our personal Gethsemane-type experiences, but that is okay. It is what life is all about. Along with the problems that drive you to Gethsemane, there will be the mountain peaks of joy that will compensate for every moment of innocent suffering. If you are faithful, the time will come when you will have merited this promise. But now the year of my redeemed is come, the Lord said, and they shall mention the loving kindness of their Lord and all that He has bestowed upon them according to His goodness and according to His loving kindness forever and forever. And if you are honest and gracious, you will exclaim, as did Job, Therefore have I uttered, that I understood not things too wonderful for me, which I knew not." We had a son, Joe who was up the alpine slide. And he was up at the top with the children, bringing him down the alpine slide. And his mother was waiting at the bottom. And she saw a woman over fumbling through the grass, <coughs> looking for something. And she went over and she said, Did you lose something? Can I help you find something? Apparently the woman had lost the cap off of the lens of her camera, and she was down in the grass looking for it. And Marlene got down and helped her. The woman spoke in very broken English. And Marlene said, "You're not from America, are you from from uh, Are you not from the United States? Are you from Mexico?" And the woman said, "No, I'm from Ecuador." And Marlene said, "What in the world are you doing here from Ecuador?" And she said, I have come to find the beloved missionary that baptized me into the Church. Marlene said, How long ago were you baptized? And she said, About 20 years. Marlene said, We had a son that served on a mission about 20 years ago in Ecuador. I bet he'd know him. What, is, what was the elder's name? And she said, Well, it was a peculiar name, Elder Joseph Featherstone. Marlene said, Come on over to the bottom of the slide. I want to introduce you to someone. About that time, Joe came down the slide. He saw his mother standing there with a woman he didn't recognize. He got up off of the slide and walked closer, and then he did. and They ran and fell on each other's neck, but they couldn't speak because their hearts were full. My testimony is that the Holy Ghost and testifying should be our foundation pillars of direction as we move into the Millennium. As the prophet Job stated, these are things which I understood not that were too wonderful for me. We belong to a wonderful and a magnificent Church. I bear my solemn and absolute witness that the Book of Mormon is true, that Christ is the Savior of the world, and that this Church is His Church and living Church, that God our Father is the Lord omnipotent, that we are His children, that He loves us and answers our prayers, however humble. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.